You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Ten years ago, yesterday, a man named Dabo Sweeney became the head football coach of the Clemson University Tigers. I mention it not only because I grew up not far from Clemson and am a Clemson fan unavoidably, My dad often took me there on on Saturdays for football games. But because in recent years, Clemson University has experienced quite the climb in its its football program. And Dabo, he's a man of faith, not necessarily because of that, but he's a very optimistic man who likes to talk big about the future. And there are some guys who do this and are just not believable at all, and it collapses on them. And the Gophers know about that. Not just the current guy, I'm talking about in the past too. But Dabo's been believable. He's sold something to his guys. He's peddled hope in a way they believed it. And one of the statements Dabo said over and over again is, the best is yet to come. The best is yet to come. They did a little video celebrating Dabo's 10 years. He said, the best is yet to come. They won a national championship a few years ago and four ACC championships, but the best is yet to come. Dabo doesn't know that for sure. He's peddling hope there. He, that, that's an aspiration. That's a dream. But as we come to Genesis 35, and as we have seen over and over again, since God has made these promises to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, when God promises that the best is yet to come, he backs it up, and he means it in a way that Dabo Sweeney and Clemson football can't hold a candle to. When God makes promises, he never goes back on those promises, and he will outlive all those who are instruments of his promises to make sure that he brings those promises for the future to pass. And what we've been seeing in the book of Genesis, now as we come to chapters 35 and 36, is that the promises of God have driven the story. He made promises to Abraham, and then Abraham learned to live by faith. He's made promises to Isaac. And then what has turned the story of Jacob for us are the promises of God. And here now as we come to the end of Jacob's story in chapter 35, we come to the place where the promises are remembered and renewed and extended in the life of Jacob. We saw last week in chapter 34 how Jacob's sons, Levi and Simeon, had deceived and slaughtered the village of Shechem. It was revenge for the reviling of their sister Dinah. And so as we come here to chapter 35, this is the last chapter where Jacob is on center stage here in the book of Genesis. He has been center stage from chapter 25 until now in chapter 35. Jacob senses that his household is in a very precarious position with the surrounding Canaanite tribes. They are a nomadic household, Jacob's. They're not native to the land. And now, Jacob says, that Levi and Simeon have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. Chapter 34, verse 30. So Jacob feels he's in trouble again. He's in distress again. Here's another crisis in Jacob's life. And since we come to chapter 35, one of the key words that structure this chapter is the word journey. It's a verb. Journey. You'll see it in the past tense. Journeyed. 
verses 5, verses 16, verses 21, Jacob and his household are journeying south from Shechem down to Bethel. Then they come through Bethlehem. Then they finish up in this chapter in Hebron. So it's this journey south successively. Verse 6 is the journey from Shechem to Bethel. Verse 16 is the journey from Bethel toward Bethlehem. And then finally, uh, verse 21 then is where the, the journey goes to the end, to Hebron. <laughs> I can't help you. You may think that uh, when you hear journeying southward, like that's what we do here at City's Church every week. We hear from a guy with a North Carolina accent and South Carolina accent and a Texas accent. We're journeying south each week. So maybe you can resonate here. As Jacob journeys south, you get to hear about Dabo Sweeney, right? Journeying south as <laughs> your pastors have come to you from the south and want to bring some good news. This morning, I want to highlight four truths for us. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Three truths for us. One of these has four in it. Three truths for us from chapters 35 and 36. And you can think of these, if you'd like, in these summary statements. There's the God of Jacob. That'll be those first seven verses we heard that Kyle read, chapter 35, verses 1 to 7. Then the God after Jacob, that's the rest of chapter 25, verses 8 to 39. And then finally, the God beyond Jacob, that's all of chapter 36. And this is one God. I'm not talking about three gods here. One God, the God of Jacob, who's also the God after Jacob, who is also the God way beyond Jacob. And with each of these three, I want to state a truth for us from the chapter. So number one, this is the God of Jacob. Our God answers in the time of crisis. Our God answers in the time of crisis. This is verses 1 to 7 of chapter 35. And when God says in verse 1 to Jacob, Arise, go to Bethel and dwell there, he is calling Jacob to fulfill a vow that Jacob made back in chapter 28. There, Jacob had come to Bethel on his way of leaving his father's house and going toward Laban's house. He's going in exile because of the anger of his brother Esau. And God appeared to Jacob personally at Bethel. And God extended to him, not just through the blessing of his father, but extended to him personally the blessing of Abraham. This is chapter 28, verse 15. God says, Behold, Jacob, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. Note that. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. And then Jacob responds with his vow. This is chapter 28, verses 20 to 22. Jacob says, If God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone, which I have set up for a pillar here in Bethel, shall be God's house. So God was with Jacob. God kept Jacob wherever he went. And yet Jacob had returned to the land and had found safety near Shechem, chapter 33, verse 18. And he'd settled down, and he had not yet returned to Bethel, so far as we know. And even though it had been decades since he'd made that vow at Bethel, God had not forgotten the vow. And so even as Jacob ages, he brings him back here to Bethel. And he does so at a time where Jacob feels very precarious in the land. And putting his whole household 
on the road could expose them to attack from the surrounding tribes. And Jacob has said, you have made me stink with the surrounding tribes, sons, by slaughtering Shechem. So Jacob knows there's hostility. There's hostility and suspicion of the surrounding tribes toward him. It's dangerous to move and get himself on the road. But God calls him out in faith in verse 1. Like Abraham called out in faith to the mountain to take Isaac back in Genesis 22. Arise, go up to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. There's no mistake here that when he mentions that you fled from your brother Esau. Jacob had known danger before. His life had been in jeopardy previously. And God had been with him. Verse 7 mentions Esau again. Jacob built an altar and called the place El Bethel because God had revealed himself to him when he fled from his brother. And so just as God had rescued Jacob from Esau's pursuit, and then again he rescues Jacob later from his uncle Laban's pursuit, God does it again here as Jacob packs up his household, exposes them to the danger, and heads out for Bethel. Verse 5, as they journeyed, a terror from God fell on the cities that were around them so that they did not pursue the sons of Jacob. If God had not acted to bring about this terror, they would have pursued Jacob when he was exposed. But God rescued him. God preserved him. He protected him. Jacob trusts that God will protect him, tenuous as things are, and so he obeys. He steps out by faith. And the key verse here in this section, and probably the key verse I want to draw your attention to in the whole chapter is verse 3. Look at verse 3 with me. So Jacob now turns and says to his household, Let us arise and go to Bethel, so that I may make there an altar to the God. Note these two things. I may make an altar to the God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. The God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I've gone. All throughout Genesis, the people are learning what monotheism is. They are surrounded by these gods. These gods keep coming back into the household. So we find out there are, there are false gods in Jacob's household that have to be cleansed before they go to Bethel. They are learning to walk in what it means that there's only one God who rules over the nations. And the God of Jacob is not like the false gods of the surrounding tribes. He is not like Laban's household gods. And he's not like the Canaanite gods that Jacob's sons would have gathered as they plundered Shechem. Those gods do not answer in the day of distress. And literally, the term here is the time of crisis. And it's a word that recurs over and over again throughout the Old Testament. The time of crisis that God answers in the time of crisis. The other gods, the false gods, are the product of human hands and imagination. They're baby toys. They don't answer. They're local. And they're not able to go wherever God's people go, which is what God promised Jacob back in Genesis 28, 15. Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go. I'm not like these localized false gods who only have certain power in a small region. My power extends everywhere. 
and I'll be with you with my presence wherever you go. And Jacob, as we know, has had his severe moments of crisis. And God has been with him. And God has shown himself to be the God who hears and who answers in the time of crisis, in the day of distress, in the moment of trouble. God showed himself to be that God for Leah in her crisis when he saw her in chapter 29 in verse, verse 31. And he remembered Rachel in her crisis, chapter 30, verse 22. He sees, he hears, he remembers, he cares. He is the living God who wants us to turn to him, to wrestle with him, as Pastor Joe preached two weeks ago, to wrestle with him in our time of crisis. And so two places we see this later on. In the Psalms, Psalm 50, verse 15, God says, Call to me in the day of trouble. Call to me in the time of crisis, and I will deliver you, and you will glorify me. Psalm 21, verse 1, May the Lord answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. And I think chapter 35 of Genesis here is in mine in Psalm 20. As he brings together the God of Jacob with the answer in the day of trouble. So number one, the God of Jacob is the one true God. He's not restricted by geography. He goes wherever you go, and he's the one who answers in the day of crisis. God answers in the time of crisis. Number two, our God outlives all our heroes. Our God outlives all our heroes. This is the rest of chapter 35, verses 8 to 29. The rest of the chapter gives a succession of four major losses for Jacob. This is where the number four came from. Four major losses for Jacob here in this chapter. The first, while the family's at Bethel, is the death of Deborah. And that is the... Jacob's mother, Rebekah, her nurse. This is in verse 8. We don't know when Rebekah died, for certain. Perhaps it was while Jacob was away in exile. But now, Rebekah's nurse, who must symbolize Rebekah in some sense to Jacob. And, and besides that, she's been a family member. She has stood in for Rebekah many times in Jacob's life. This is an important person in Jacob's life. This is no small loss. This is like losing his mother, and this shows that the generation before Jacob now is going off the scene. The generation before him is dying, and Jacob is entering into his final stage of life, his elder years. There's the first loss, Deborah's death. The next two losses are the hardest. The first of those is his beloved wife, Rachel, who dies giving birth to another son named Benjamin as the family journeys south from Bethel. And we hear that they're nearing Bethlehem when it happens. Rachel was the daughter of Laban that Jacob loved so much. He'd been so smitten over. And he had worked not just seven years, but in the end, 14 years to have her as his wife. And she had struggled to bear children. And she said to him, this is chapter 30, verse 1, Give me children or I die. Then, when God had remembered her in his, his painful but perfect timing, she bore her first son, and she called his name Joseph, saying, May the Lord add to me another son. That's chapter 30, verse 24. And now God answers that prayer from chapter 30 
for another son. Even as she dies in giving him life. And the narrator has already told us enough back in chapter 29, over and over again, three times in chapter 29, verses 18, verse 20, verse 30 of 29. We know what a blow this is to Jacob. He loved Rachel. It's the second loss. Third loss in this chapter. Seemingly on the heels of losing his beloved wife, Rachel, he is dealt the blow of learning that his oldest son has slept with his concubine. Rachel's servant, Bilhah, who had borne Jacob, Dan, and Naphtali. The narrator now says, he says very little. We don't need the details here. We know plenty, and we'll find out more in chapter 49 of what this means. That this would be devastating for Jacob is, is more than plain. And at the end of the Joseph story, when he blesses his 12 sons and begins with Reuben, he says to him, Reuben, you shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed and then you defiled it. So when it matters most, Jacob communicates with clarity what this means and what it has cost Reuben. And whether Reuben, who is the son of Leah, did this in part because of the household struggle of power between Rachel and Leah, because Bilhah was Rachel's servant, we don't know for sure. But we do know that verses 22 to 25 now list the sons of Jacob by their mothers. And so it kind of seems to echo or anticipate at least what's coming in the Joseph story that the family is lining up by birth, lining up by the mothers because of Jacob, how he has lined up his affection for Rachel versus Leah. So the family's lining up in that way. And we're going to see in the Joseph story the kind of priority, the kind of love that Jacob has for Joseph and Benjamin that the other sons feel and attack Joseph for. And the fourth and final loss here in the rest of chapter 35. And this one, like Deborah, would have been expected. And we get the report here at the end of chapter 35 of the death of Jacob's father, Isaac. And just as peace had been restored between Isaac and his half-brother, Ishmael, and they had together buried their father, Abraham, back in chapter 25, so Jacob and Esau, so far as we know, remain at peace, and they bury their father Isaac together here in verse 29. And this completes the southward journey from Shechem in the north down to Bethel, toward Bethlehem, and then down to Hebron, where Abraham and Isaac are buried and where they had uh, sojourned. Jacob's come now to the place of Abraham and to Isaac. Why here at the end of the Jacob story, we've been focusing on Jacob now from 25 to 35, and the end of chapter 35, so Jacob's been center stage, and the time when Jacob walks off center stage, we get the death of Isaac. Why end Jacob's story with the death of his father? It is not Isaac. This is a really important lesson here from, from Genesis and all these generations of. The whole book is structured by these declarations. These are the generations of. Beginning chapter 1 with the heavens and the earth, chapter 5 with Adam, chapter 8 with Noah. This book is structured by generations. And what it shows us over and over again, that it is not the individual who lives his own life and legacy on his own but that a major part, if not the most significant part, of a person's legacy is the generations that come after him. 
It is not Isaac who makes his own legacy. The legacy of Isaac has been the story of Jacob. Jacob plays as much a part, if not more, than Isaac does in Isaac's legacy. And it is not Jacob who will make his own legacy, but his children will be a part of that, and especially Joseph. That's why the narration now is going to switch to the story of Joseph. In chapter 37, we begin with these are the generations of Jacob, and what follows is the story of Joseph, which I think has something important to say to us as a church, especially a young church just three and a half years old. Our greatest legacy is not just about what we do, but our greatest legacy is going to be our children, the generation that comes after us, the generation we love and invest in. Once we become parents, the most important work of our lives is no longer our own grades and our achievements and our awards and our victories, but our investment in the next generation. And in a profound sense, our lives have been writing our parents' stories, whether we've been aware of it or not. And now our children are writing our stories. And not just in in individual families, but as a church. This is why what we do on Sunday mornings, in Sunday school, and in the nursery, and in community group, in our life together, and investing in our little ones is so vital and important. They are our legacy. So four major losses here in chapter 35 for Jacob. And even in the midst of these four losses, there is a revisiting of and an extension for Jacob of the promises of God. This is so important. We get a quick summary of what happened in chapter 32, where we were two weeks ago. This is, uh, look with me at verses 9 and 10. God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padanaram, that's Laban's home, and he blessed him. He's revisiting the story. And God said to him, your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. And so he called his name Israel, revisiting that story from chapter two, making 32, making sure that as we come to the end now of Jacob's story, that we're not missing the high point that happened in chapter 32. And then we get the final cumulative word of promise for Jacob from God that affirms and extends God's promises to him so far. Look at verses 11 and 12. I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. And the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So God had told Adam at the very beginning to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1. And then Noah, chapters 8 and 9, told to be fruitful and multiply. And Abraham, chapter 17, told to be fruitful and multiply. And when Jacob went into exile, his father Isaac had blessed him in chapter 28 and said, God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Chapter 28, verses 3 and 4. So the original commission to humanity and the promises of Abraham are here clearly applied and renewed to Jacob. And now there's this one new element. This has not been mentioned before to Jacob. Kings 
shall come from your own body. Verse 11. That was mentioned to Abraham in chapter 17, verse 6. Kings were mentioned. In other words, Jacob, the best is yet to come. And when God says it, he means it. You're not just going to be a family, not just a little tribe. You will be a company of peoples. You will be a nation that will need a king to rule over the nation. And so when he's saying kings will come from your body, he's saying this is how large and significant your family will be and how their generations will endure because not a singular king, but kings, plural, will come from your body. And so even as Jacob's heroes die here in chapter 35, his mother's mother, his nurse, beloved wife, his own father, God's promises live on, and his promises do not die. God will live on once Jacob has died, and God will extend his promises even as death comes to Jacob. They will not die with Jacob. And God will live on when all our heroes die. Jacob's time is coming, and it will not throw God for a loop. He will be just fine without Jacob. So secondly, the God after Jacob outlives all our heroes, which is one reason why his promises are so precious. He always lives to make good on them. Third and finally here then, our God rules beyond his own people. Our God rules beyond his own people. This is my summary of chapter 36. <laughs> Faster seatbelt. Um, chapter 36 may seem oddly out of place. Maybe you're wondering, isn't Jacob the chosen son? Why such a long genealogy for Esau? I thought Jacob was chosen. And back in chapter 25, there's a genealogy for Ishmael. But Isaac is the chosen son. Why these genealogies for the sons that aren't chosen? One remarkable truth this demonstrates for us is that God's concern and God's rule extends beyond the boundaries of his covenant sons. God has promised his favor to his people, but he has not limited his power only to his people. He is the God of the nations, and he is not done with all the families of the earth just because he pledged himself to Abraham and to Jacob. In fact, the reason that he promised to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob the way he did is because he was concerned with all the families of the nations. He promised Abraham he would bless the whole world through him. And God is not yet done with Esau and with Esau's tribe. Esau will become a nation. Just as Jacob became a nation called Israel, Esau became a nation called Edom, E-D-O-M. It's such good news for us Gentiles that God's not done with those outside Israel. And today we may think of ourselves of Jacob, we may think of ourselves as offspring of Jacob by faith, but by nature, we're more sons of Esau than we are of Jacob. And this story of how Edom, the brother nation, relates to Israel, God's chosen people, doesn't end here in chapter 36. It goes on and on and on. This is not the end of the story for Jacob's descendants and Esau's descendants. 400 years later, when Jacob's people, God brings them out of slavery in Egypt, word spreads of what God is doing for Israel and the surrounding nations back in the promised land worry. And one of those that's mentioned is Edom. 
The Edomites hear the news of what God has done for Israel at the Red Sea. And then when the people come marching through the wilderness and they come up toward the promised land and they want to pass through the road toward the promised land and go by the Edomites, their brother nation, if anybody's going to be kind to them as they come back into the land, it's the Edomites. But this is Numbers chapter 20. Edom refused to give Israel passage through its territory. This is the first of two painful episodes between the Israelites and the Edomites. They just want to go on the road. We just want to go the straight route. And the Edomites say, no, we'll come out with an army. And so, in other places, God's people take the attack. This time God tells them, this is Numbers 21, go around the land of Edom. Leave them be. It's your brother nation. Leave them in peace. And then, not only that, but in Deuteronomy, God tells his people to treat the people of Esau as brothers, not to take their land, not to disturb Esau's descendants. And so as Israel settles into the promised land, Edom is to be a border for Israel and not one of the nations that God cleanses from the land. And after the period of the judges, and Israel finally has the long-promised king, the first king's name is Saul, he fights against the surrounding nations. Edom is included in that. And then under Saul's successor, David, who's the, the height of the kingdom, Israel finally subdues Edom, takes spoil from Edom, and stations garrisons in Edom. So now this prophecy has come to pass that uh, the nation of Edom will be inside of Jacob, will, will seek shelter, be possessed by Jacob. That's, that's in 2 Samuel, 1 Chronicles 18. But it's not going to last long. David's son is named Solomon. And even under Solomon, God raises up an Edomite to be difficult for Solomon. This is 1 Kings 11. The Lord raised up an adversary against Solomon, Hadad, the Edomite. And he was of the royal house of Edom. Why did God do this? Why raise up an adversary for the king of his people? 1 Kings 11.9. The Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. So about a century after Solomon, Edom is still under Israel's reign, but things are way more tenuous. We find that under King Jehoshaphat, Israel is still uh, over Edom. But then under Jehoshaphat's son, Jehoram, Edom finally breaks out. They revolt. They break away from Israel. They become their own nation again rather than being ruled by Israel. And then here's the second painful episode. More than 200 years later, when the big bad Babylonians come in and destroy Jerusalem... Edom, the brother nation, stays aloof and does not come to the help of brother Israel, but conspires against Israel and gloats over the destruction of Israel. It's very painful for the Israelites. Psalm 137 reflects this pain. Psalm 137, verse 7. Remember, O Lord, against the Edomites the day of Jerusalem, how they said, lay it bare, lay it bare down to its foundations. And then prophet after prophet, Mentions the, mentions the judgment that is to come for Edom. Jeremiah, Obadiah, the whole book of Obadiah is about the judgment coming to Edom. Ezekiel, Joel, Amos, all prophesied that it's just a matter of time before destruction comes to Edom because of their sin and rebellion against God. And it didn't take long for Babylon to return. And they laid Edom as low as they had laid Israel. And there were a few who escaped, moved into a part of Judah, and were called the, the area was called Idumea, and they were called Idumeans. 
And there were some of them even that were around in Jesus' day. The most famous of them was King Herod. He was an Idumean, the old Edomites that had moved into the land of Israel and had survived from the exile. And so for Israel's whole life as a nation, here's the point. For Israel's whole life as a nation, Edom serves as a kind of control or a kind of comparison point to show the electing love of God to Israel. Edom shows Israel what it would have been like for Israel if God had not chosen Israel and made a special covenant with Israel. Jacob and Esau were twins. God gave Edom a land, not the promised land, but a neighboring territory to the southeast, and he preserved the nation for centuries to show Israel what they would have been if God hadn't chosen them. And so in the book of Romans, when the apostle Paul is trying to show the beauty of God's electing love, God's choosing his people, he turns to the story of Jacob and Esau. Let me read you Romans 9, verses 10 to 13. When Rebekah, their mother, had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated, is a reference to Malachi chapter 21. And this is where it gets right to the point of why God preserved Edom and why we have a genealogy in chapter 36 of Esau's descendants, the nation of Edom. This is Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 to 5. Listen carefully. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? It's an ancient prophet. This is very relevant. When God says, I have loved you, and we want to say, how have you loved us? Show us your love, God. How have you loved us? Here's how God answers. Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. Because of Esau's sin, God's judgment has come on Esau because of his sin. God has looked the other way on Israel's sin. It's not that Israel was a perfect nation. God's looked the other way on Israel's sin, but he's punishing that sin finally in Edom. This is a demonstration of his love. I have laid waste Edom's hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may build, but I will tear down. And they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this and you shall say, listen to what he says, you shall say, Israelites, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. So the reason God has preserved this people of Edom so long until their destruction is he wants to show his people his greatness. His greatness beyond the borders and his greatness in demonstrating his special covenant love to his people. As we finish here, there's one more part of the story of Jacob's descendants and Esau's descendants and their wrestling back and forth between each other for centuries that we've left, left out here. Even though in the end, the nation of Edom would not be restored from exile like Israel was. There is a ray of hope 
for the Edomites. This is, this is amazing. This is the book of Amos, chapter 9, verse 12. And it's not a hope that Edom would possess, but that Edom would be possessed by the right kind of king. This is Amos chapter 9, verse 12. God says, I will raise up the booth of David, Israel's greatest king. I'll raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name. So Genesis 36, in the oddness of this genealogy, has something vital to say to us about our God. His sovereignty and his saving concerns extend beyond Israel, beyond his present people. He is the kind of God who loves to welcome foreigners into his people. He's sovereign over them when they're out there. In his sovereignty, he brings them to his people to express his special love to them. He doesn't doesn't love them out there with a special love without coming to his people. He brings them to the son of David. He brings them to Christ to demonstrate to them his special love. And so as we come to the table, we come to a, a God who loves to welcome foreigners into his people, Edomites among them. We have seen that our God's rule extends beyond Jacob and that God's promises outlive our heroes and that God answers us in our time of crisis. But there's one last thing to say here about the time of crisis and what it means for God to answer in the time of crisis. Verse 3, when Jacob celebrates and when we celebrate in verse 3, that God answers us in the day of our distress. God answers us in our time of crisis. Jacob doesn't mean, and we don't mean, that God answers us how we want, and God answers us when we want. Jacob spent 20 years under the tyranny of Laban. And next week, we're going to start the Joseph story. And Joseph spent 13 years going down in slavery, going down in prison, going down, down, down until God raised him up. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, we're encouraged to draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need, in time of crisis, in the day of distress, in the moment of trouble. And then take so much encouragement from this. That's Hebrews 4, 16. Just eight verses later in Hebrews 5, 8, we read about Jesus' time of crisis. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. God answered Jesus in his time of crisis. But you know what? Even for Jesus, he didn't answer in the way that Jesus wanted, at least not part. Jesus says, if it is your will, may this cup pass from me. And God didn't have the cup pass. He didn't spare Jesus' death, but he answered him. Jesus didn't have to be spared death to have the Father's answer. 
The Father's answer wasn't that Jesus wouldn't go to the cross, but God's answer was he would raise him from the dead. And so the God of Jacob, the God after Jacob, and the God beyond Jacob, who we celebrate here at the table, is a God who is too real and too big and too glorious to work according to human expectations and timetables. He almost certainly will not do just what you want, just when you want it. But he sees you. He hears you. And in Christ, he will answer, not necessarily when and how we want, but he will provide all we need. He will be with you. He will keep you. He will not leave you wherever you go. So ask the brothers to come, the worship leaders. This meal is for the members of City's Church. But if you're here with us this morning and you would claim the God of Jacob through Jesus, then we'd invite you to eat with us. We'll bring the elements to you, retain them, and we'll eat together. His body is the true bread. Let us serve you.